Welcome back to another episode of the Anglo-Omani Society podcast. Today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Ramadha Al-Husni, who is an extraordinary junior research fellow in physiology at Queen's College, Oxford. Ramadha spent the first 15 years of her life in the coastal city of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, followed by a few years in Oman before moving to the UK in 2011 to pursue higher education. In this podcast, we ask her about her experiences of London, Oxford, Dar es Salaam and Muscat, as well as also finding out more about her incredible work in ion channel physiology and pharmacology. So, Ramitha, do you want to start by telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Okay, so I was born in Tanzania and I lived there up until my mid-teens, after which I moved to Oman for a few years, pretty much finished off my high school there. And then I moved to the UK about 12 years ago to begin my career in higher education. Um, so I first went to the University of Kent to do my BSc in Biomedical Sciences. Um, I then moved to UCL to do my Master's in Biomedical Sciences as well. And it was towards the end of my Master's programme that I did a final year project in um, the lab that I was in, which is uh, based in neuropharmacology. And that's when I realised I really wanted to stay and do research. Um, and I, that's when I applied to do a PhD in, at UCL in that exact lab within pharmacology. And yes, I spent about three to four years at UCL doing my PhD. And about a year and a half ago, I began my postdoc in Oxford. And yeah, it's, it's been a wild journey, but it's been really good and very rewarding. And yeah. That's amazing. So did you always know you wanted to go into biomedical sciences? Is this always something you wanted to do? Or did you sort of find your like way along as you were studying at different levels? Yeah, so during my high school, I really struggled with biology for some reason. Um, I quite enjoyed chemistry, but um, I thought, let me just put in the extra effort to do well in biology. And it was, it was then that I actually appreciated mostly the human side of biology. And with that, then I realised this is definitely something I want to do and something I wanted to look into. And I think that's where biomedical sciences pretty much came into, it came, um, appeared as an idea and I've loved it ever since. It's, it's great in the sense that it's quite broad as a subject and as a field because it covers all aspects of the human body from um, down to molecular level to organ systems and allowing you to appreciate that and then use that sort of knowledge to uh, develop drugs or any sort of treatment for diseases which is which I believe is really really important then I so would you say that's what you enjoy most about biomedical sciences yes definitely um as a doctor I do see and I do see a lot of training medics uh learn so much of the theory but when I do come to teach them all of the pharmacology and down to the down to molecular level you do really see them appreciate all of the stuff that they're learning along the way understanding how it is they've come to a particular condition, a particular uh, disease. And it's so rewarding to see that they appreciate that side of uh, diseases and, uh, and that allows them to better understand the treatments they provide and that sort of thing. I remember you saying that you really much prefer the practical over the theory. Would you say that's still true now? Um, I think so. <laughs> no, I, just, I, do, I do really, really enjoy being in the lab and doing a lot of the experiments. Um, but I guess the theory does is quite is as relevant as the the research as well because you do need to understand the fundamentals and you need to be able to engage with a lot of literature online to then know where to build your research from and so these so it is really important to have some sort of balance but I do have to say I mean it's quite shocking for me to say that I do love being in the lab because during my undergrad 
I appreciated the lab experience that I had, but it was not something I really, I, I think it was something I took for granted. And coming towards the end of my master's, uh, I think it was the experience in, my, in the lab that I really enjoyed and realized this is what I should have been doing this whole time. I really should have prioritized my time in the lab because you, you do gain a lot of uh, really important experience that you could use for both your PhD as well as um, a postdoc position afterwards. Definitely. And in terms of your time now, do you spend most of your time in the lab or do you spend quite a lot of time teaching as well? Um, I do spend the majority of my time in the lab because I was hired to do that. Uh, so my research fellow as well is mostly lab based, but uh, I do personally love, love teaching. So I do make an effort to go out of my way to teach. And um, my supervisor has been really, really uh, helpful in that sense. He's uh, provided me the chances to teach and uh, it's been really really great I it is a lot of hard work especially in Oxford because it's rewarding because the students here absolutely love to learn and you can tell that from the hour two hours you spend with them they ask questions over and over again they it, it's actually it's, it's really really um worthwhile and it's it's a juggle um every now and then but I do really, really enjoy it amazing and if you're looking back over your academic career so far can you think of a highlight or a moment that you felt like oh yes this is definitely what I should be doing? I think it was during my PhD because I during my PhD I worked on um, uh, higher systems of the body in terms of the sample that I was working with so when I when something so a lot of the times when you do work with native tissues things don't always work um, at the first instance but when they do it's 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 rewarding you think oh my god something's actually working and it happened particularly because I was doing a lot of iron channel um, pharmacology during my PhD but it was basically um, it was based on neurodegeneration particularly Parkinson's disease and um, I, I was working in the part of the brain that uh, is, is affected mostly during Parkinson's disease it's the substantia nigra we have a lot of neuronal loss of your dopaminergic neurons and I was trying to understand what causes this neuronal cell death and Look for us, uh, so tied down to focusing on a particular ion channel, not realizing that there's so many other ion channels that are really involved in how the specific and um, the specifics of uh, the ion channel of interest. And it was over time and being able to see the effects of these other ion channels and native tissues that was very, very exciting and got me to want uh, to see this a lot further. And yeah, that's pretty much what got me through my PhD and then realizing. What I wanted to do during my postdoc. Amazing and are you still researching a similar thing now you're still working with iron channels? Yes yes but I'm working a different iron channel but it's pretty much using uh, the techniques I used during my PhD which is electrophysiology because um, I'm an electrophysiologist um, by practice and so when the post came up um, as an ad it sounded like home to me and something I'm very familiar with and I thought I cannot miss out on this opportunity. So I'm working on a particular ion channel known as, it's a chloride ion channel known as TMEM16A. So I'll, I'll take you to the basics of it yeah. and how it gets to, yeah. So in so throughout your body, you have um, every bodily function, um, such as the function of your blood vessels to heartbeats to the function of your brain or everything is pretty much controlled by these little electrical currents in your body. And these currents are actually driven by uh, these microscopic pores, gated pores that are found in the cell membrane, and these are known as ion channels. And um, so it's 
the movement of ions in and out of these um, little gated pores that cause the electrical currents that control all of our bodily functions. So the chloride, I mean, the eye channel that I'm working on is very specific to chloride and only allows chloride through. And um, particular chloride channels actually found on certain cells, such as uh, the muscle cells that line blood vessels. And so when the channels are activated, it causes the, the muscles around the blood vessels to contract. And when the eye channels are closed, the current decreases and allowing the blood vessels to relax. So it's in this way that blood's actually allowed to, is able to be pumped around your body when necessary. So um, in what's actually quite um, interesting about this eye channel is that it's actually regulated and modulated by the cell membrane itself. Typically, a lot of um, ion channels are regulated by a lot of external factors, but this one's actually regulated by the membrane that it's embedded in. And that's because um, a cell membrane actually uh, has a lot of oily substances, such as cholesterol, and typically they're called lipids. And so it is quite sensitive to the lipid environment of the membrane. And taking it a step further, in the, in the cell, there's a small compartment known as a lysosome, and that's what regulates the lipid distribution in um, in the membrane. So what my researchers are trying to do is understand how the lysosome affects um, the lipid environment in the membrane, which then in turn affects the, mem um, the ion channel. Because we're trying to better understand how the ion channel is affected in a lot of blood vessel disorders, such as the high blood pressure and stroke, and also understand how the lysosome is involved in the system, because there are a lot of lipid storage disorders um, known as Neiman-Pick disease that are quite um, detrimental to children and adults as well. And it's a rare disease, but it's another neurodegenerative disorder that is really, really horrible. Um, so it's it's actually, I think it, it's, it's brilliant in a way that it will actually shed light on how eye channels are actually regulated by lipids. And it's, and it, um, and it's something that would sort of bring a new light to biology and how our systems work and how complicated they are and uh, I think that's pretty much it I don't know if, any, if that was clear enough no that's amazing I mean it's just incredible how you're working on that and how you can really see what effect that's going to have and where it could be used to treat these diseases if I, tell me if I'm understanding wrong but you're like trying to develop these lipid-like molecules Correct. so has that something that's been done before um or is this quite is this completely new in terms of developing these molecules? Um, so I'm not entirely sure about, uh, um, it might be the case with other lipid sensitive ion channels, but in particular to uh, the TMM16H that we're working on, um, there are other blockers that are out there that do target this ion channel, but they're not therapeutically viable. So we're actually right. working with uh, industrial collaborators who do a lot of the chemistry behind producing these compounds. And then we in turn test the compounds on native tissues, on small cell systems to better understand how they interact with the ion channel and how and whether or not they actually can work in very small concentrations because um, therapeutically you don't want to be dosing someone with high concentrations of particular compound or drugs simply because they could have adverse effects so we're over time we're trying to build and, and develop a drug that works a very very small concentration it's very specific to the channel and nothing else around it yeah, I think it will take a while before we get there, but we are making good strides and we have a lot of talented people in the lab, um, each with some sort of expertise that can kind of that come together to do a lot of work and really do it really quickly as well, which is really good.
That's amazing. Yeah, it's great to be part of a team and use all of your different skill sets. No, definitely. I came from my PhD where I was the only electrophysiologist in the lab and um, the lab was purely electrophysiology. So it was hard to sort of, um, if I was stuck doing something, that was the only method I had to sort of continue my work. But now that I'm exposed to a lot of different techniques, I if something doesn't work, I know to go to a different system, even a more simpler system, see if it works there and then slowly work my way back to a native tissue and see how I can sort of make adjustments there to, to incorporate the biology that I just recently learned. That's been really, really good. And with research like this, like how long does it tend to take for findings to then be implemented in medicine and actually used to treat patients? So it does take... A very long time. I mean, most of the preclinical studies works to, as well as develop a drug, it's a drug, it's better to understand a drug target and to consider it as a viable drug target, which would then be passed on to pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industries uh, and they'd look into developing an actual chemical structure, which, which would then be used. And after that, obviously, how all of the clinical trials and all of the safety measures that have to be worked through, and that can easily take between five to 10 years once um, a target's been established and a potential compound as well. So it does take some time, but we're hoping with the latest technologies being developed, AI and that sort of thing, this could speed up the process. And yeah, I guess the more we learn of different ion channels and the more we understand how they interact, we can use the same biology and same applications and other ion channels that work similarly and that sort of thing so that's pretty much how we've been relying on the vaccine as well trying to use previous uh, work to develop more recent vaccines yeah. amazing and so you've been in the uk for is it 10 years now 11 years now yeah something like that it's been wow. as you were growing up did you always want to come to the uk was it somewhere you wanted to visit or did it just sort of happen yeah, so i've been coming to the uk ever since um i was young for medical reasons and i was here almost every six months um, but then my elder sister pretty much took the leap of faith and moved to the, um, to the UK for her um, A-levels. And ever since then, it's pretty much been the hub for the entire family to realise as soon as you're done with your, high um, with your high school, you move to the UK to do uh, to your high education. And it's just kind of been the case for everyone in our family. And so my elder sister is still here and she sort of made, made a life for herself. And my twin and I are currently here as well. And it's almost become our second home. To be honest, I've spent my entire adulthood in the UK, so I don't really know much else. Yeah. <laughs> I just have memories of Oman and Tanzania, but I did spend um, pretty much my entire adulthood in the UK. And how do you find like the different parts of the UK? So you moved from London to Oxford. Did you find that quite a difficult transition to move from such a big city? Or are you quite enjoying the quieter life in Oxford? Oh, it's actually before London, I was in Canterbury, which was oh, a very quiet yeah. town as well. And I did really, I really appreciated sort of university based in a small town because you do bump into a lot of students and you sort of you're, you're able to build a little family around university. Whereas in London, I think everyone sort of came in with their own. So everyone in, uh, in London pretty much lived in London their entire life. So they have their own family friends, they have their own uh, childhood friends. So it's hard to sort of build a connection um, within London itself. And with regards to the city life, you know, I was glad to take a break from that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the huge adjustment from London to Oxford was actually leaving my twin behind in London at the time because I never lived away from her my entire life. And that was a huge adjustment. Yeah. But, yeah, but moving to Oxford during the lockdown as well helped me sort of 
uh, kind of it was almost allowed me to pace myself and and slowly get used to being in Oxford and not being overwhelmed by the city life in Oxford. It is quite rigid. It is really really busy as well. But yeah, no, ever since then, I've actually really, really loved it here. I live in a s- sort of quieter area of Oxford, which is quite nice. Um, and do enjoy the bike rides. Not so much the underground in London. But <laughs> <laughs> and how do you find the difference in the university? So obviously Oxford has a college system. Do you think that's something that other unis could benefit from, having experienced both? So when I first moved to Oxford, the whole the first year I had no college experience and I had no affiliation with the college. But it was, I think it was the last four months and I actually began my research fellowship in a college. And I could tell you it was like day, night and day being in Oxford and uh, being a part of the college system. I, I felt as if I was in Oxford, I felt what people always describe Oxford to be. And I think it was because the colleges pretty much provide a, a home away from home. It's almost like, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a small, very small knitted community that you're provided with. I mean, for me as a postdoc, uh, you're generally not affiliated with the college. So being able to have that college affiliation, I'm able to build a connection with other intellectuals from different disciplines. To be honest, I had no experience in the humanities before this. And now I have quite a lot of uh, large exposure to the humanities and really have a great appreciation for it. Um, for the students, I believe it's actually a huge, it's an amazing system because they have an identity. They have a place to, because Oxford is quite is a large university and has um, there's so much to it, but being able to be associated with a smaller entity of it um, almost gives you an identity within the university. And it, it's within the college that a lot of them have their tutorials, which is one of the main teaching methods in Oxford. And they have a lot of their housing, especially for the first and second year students. And all of the support within a college, they never have to go out of their way for anything. Everything's pretty much around there. I'm not entirely sure. Sh- um, it would be amazing for the other universities could adopt the same system, but with Oxford and Cambridge alike, these systems have been in place for centuries. So it's, so I don't know if it's the heritage or the history and the tradition that have really yeah. made these colleges the way they are. Um, but it would be amazing if all the universities could adopt it in some way. Definitely. I think it would just, as you're saying, it would just be difficult to sort of do that overnight, I think. No, no, so definitely. And so you're saying you spent the first 10 years of your life in Dar es Salaam, is that right? Yes, about 10 to 15 years, yeah. And do you ever, like, are there there things that you miss a lot from that time, like certain foods and certain memories that you have? Oh, definitely. Um, I think growing up in Tanzania, food was a huge part of our lives. And, um, I mean, just as as soon as I walked out of my gate, there was this food stall just outside that that was so famous in the city. And my sister and I were there every single day without fail. And just being able to do that sort of thing, go out and eat enjoy the street food enjoy um, the culture and just being around family that's one thing I miss the most and that's something I definitely um, try to make the most of every time I go back yeah can you see yourself ever moving back to Tanzania or do you think it would if you were to move back you might go to Oman or Um, moving back to I'd love to move back to Tanzania but it's quite hard to I mean having established um, a research career that is quite focused it's quite hard to then move to um, Tanzania specifically but I do I, I'm not entirely sure what the research councils are like in Tanzania and how they're developing within the research but I do hear that they are making good strides but until I have some good, a good sense of it only then can I probably imagine myself heading back to Tanzania but I think for now Oman is possibly an option I have recently looked into um, how research is conducted in 
um, Oman specifically at the University of Nizwa. I was, I was actually there um, about a month ago, which is really nice. I got to see the facilities and how research is actually um, performed. And it's been really, really good. There's great potential in Oman, I believe. I think the only struggle is um, being able to acquire or just get hold of any of the basic consumables, which, because they rely so heavily on either the UK or the US to acquire a lot of the simple consumables, it is really, really expensive and quite hard. It does take a very long time to actually um, get them sent over. So it does make it difficult for them to make some make good progress in their research, which is a shame. I think if yeah. I do ever go back, it is something I'll definitely look into. Or, I mean, if anyone out there is looking into sort of making some sort of huge investment in the Middle East. I think that is one way to do it, either providing some sort of infrastructure to allow the consumable uh, influx into the regions or um, just to facilitate research because they do have great potential. I've seen the labs and the uh, equipment. I was actually really, really impressed. Amazing. And like, can you, if you're thinking about the future of your research, can you think of particular topics you'd like to explore next? Or do you think you're very focused on your current topic and sort of are just happy to continue with that for now? I think, um, actually, since I started my postdoc, I've learned so many different techniques and appreciated iron channel pharmacology in a whole different light. Um, if I was to move away from this particular iron channel, I'd probably go back to the iron channel that I worked on during my PhD. And probably implement a lot of what I've learned now into that, those iron channels. It might actually help me understand the systems a lot better because I've been able to sort of break down iron channel pharmacology down to a level where I can understand why a particular molecule acts a certain way. And I think, yeah, because I, I've always wanted to really sort of crack down what, it, what is actually going on in these dopaminergic neurons uh, that cause uh the onset of Parkinson's disease so I think that's something I definitely want to look into in the future but for now I think I'll just focus on the particular chloride channel because there's so much to it there's so much you can learn from it and then take it from there amazing if anyone is listening to the podcast who has maybe just started their career in biomedical sciences or is thinking about going into it what would be your advice now I'd say don't limit yourself um, into uh, with regards to the subjects that you choose. Biomedical science is, is so broad, and it actually allows you the opportunity to pick modules from all different on uh, all different corners of it. But one thing I should, um, if I had one advice, it would be that well, make it two now. Um, don't take your lab experience for granted because you have no idea where you'll be in a year's time, two years' time. You you may think, oh you know, research is too much for me. But I, I felt the same way only until I got to the end of my master's program where I realized I really should have made most of my research experience during my undergrad. And there is so much potential in biomedical sciences because that's where a lot of drug targets are developed. That's how that's where we understand the fundamentals of our the human body to be able to take take any sort of I means to understand any uh, condition, how it manifests. So it is really, really important. It's just don't limit yourself. And when it gets to a point where you realise this, this is something I want to do, especially towards the end of your um, bachelor programme, consider doing that as a master's programme. I mean, consider taking that subject and, do, and pursuing it as a master's programme, whether it's neuroscience or cell biology or anything of the sort, or pharmacology, because you don't really have to have had a degree in that um, field to uh, pursue a master's in it, because they accommodate pretty much everything. I know in Oxford, they definitely do. 
Um, so those who do come into do a master's in pharmacology have had a background in so many, in various um, subjects within biomedical sciences and they're very accommodating of it, which is really, really good. Amazing. Yeah. And finally, my last question is, what are your hopes for the future of biomedical sciences? What would you like to see? Firstly, I definitely like to, it'd be my dream to see drug targets be pursued a lot quicker and drugs that are then developed from these drug targets to get through to production a lot quicker. And I think we are getting there with time with new technologies and AI being developed. I'm hoping the whole process will be a lot quicker, not smoother. And we'll be able to use the previous knowledges that we are previous understandings of other iron channels and other body systems to develop drugs a lot quicker and to get them out of out into the market a lot quicker. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would argue that yes, that takes away from um, the humans actually doing the work. But if I mean, humans will always be a part of any sort of technology um, advancements because because of the simplicity of there being some errors here and there, and also the analysis of or, or techniques, I would, I mean, there is human error, but I think I would put my trust in human's judgment. Um, but yeah, it's just me being, being able to envision this whole process taking place a lot quicker. That would be a dream come true. And being able to allow biomedical research to take place in various parts of the world as well. And being able to have that reach as well, to not be limited to just the, the Western world or the more advanced places. I think we should give a lot of the countries that are trying, are struggling to to give them resources and ability because they do have the potential, they do have the, the expertise, but and they want to be able to do this at home to to have some sort of development in their own countries, but they don't have the means to do it. And I think the Western world especially should sort of provide the infrastructure or to, to provide some sort of advice to them to um, allow them to flourish as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you next week.